This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Hello, I'm Marina Yevshan, co-host of the Russia-Ukraine War Report podcast. And today is October the 16th, 2023. It's been 3,520 days since Russia's illegal occupation of Crimea on January 27, 2014, and one year and 235 days since Russia expanded its war of aggression against Ukraine. During today's podcast, you can use a Russia-Ukraine war map to help you visualize the areas discussed. And there is a link in the podcast description. The Russia-Ukraine war report is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from our direct contacts and journalists in Ukraine, the Russian Ministry of Defense and the Ukrainian General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine Morning Reports, Operational Command North, South and East of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geospatial experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media channels with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission – the truth. Because the truth matters. Let's start with the daily assessment. There are only small changes from yesterday, so if you skip to the next section, I won't even know. The soft response by Ukraine's allies after Russian aggression on Ukraine's border will eventually lead to a significant incident that could result in military intervention. The Ukrainian summerfall counteroffensive is likely reaching its culmination point due to a number of factors even though Ukraine still maintains significant combat potential and is maintaining the initiative in the Bakhmut and Zaporizhia regions. The Russian Federation has launched multiple large-scale attacks in an attempt to force Ukraine to utilize its reserve forces and accelerate the consumption of ammunition, with United States military aid remaining in limbo. While Russia has taken the initiative in three areas of operation, AO, the poorly executed offensives have caused catastrophic Russian losses. We maintain that the new Russian offensive has exposed the degradation of the artillery capabilities due to a shortage of replacement barrels, a lack of powder charges, and the reluctance to use full charges for maximum range to preserve the lifespan of existing barrels. The removal of the United States Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, has put future Ukrainian military operations at risk. We further assess that the abrupt ending of U.S. military aid will be catastrophic if a resolution is not reached within the next 10 to 17 days. We are pessimistic that Congress is capable of seating a new speaker in the near future. Additionally, Western partners are not meeting their promised military training, including for F-16 pilots, heavy equipment and ammunition delivery dates, and these continued delays are negatively impacting Ukraine's military capabilities. 
the Kremlin continues to use the Israel-Hamas war as a distraction in the information space to fracture support for Ukraine further and has engaged in large-scale disinformation campaigns. We maintain that Russia is stockpiling missiles for large-scale attacks on Ukraine's energy infrastructure as the weather continues to degrade and the activity to destroy Ukraine's electrical system has started. Finally, while the possibility of an intentional nuclear accident caused by Russian occupiers at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant remains low, the threat should be taken seriously. Today's action report starts in Kharkiv. In the Kupiansk operational area, AO, the situation remains challenging for Ukrainian forces, but unchanged. North of Kupiansk, mutual fighting continued near Sinkivka, and Russian forces were on the offensive near Leman Pershy. East of Kupiansk, fighting continued east of Ivanivka and near Orlanska. Moving on to the situation in the Donbass, we start in Luhansk. In the Svatova AO, Russian attacks intensified with renewed fighting east of Novoyehorivka and continued fighting near Makivka. In occupied Luhansk, there was a large explosion in the city of Luhansk. The so-called Luhansk People's Republic improved operational security in June 2023, and there was no additional information on the situation. NASA fire information for resource management systems showed several hot spots at a Russian training base on the western edge of the city. It will be several days before the next satellite pass, so keep your fingers crossed for clear weather. In northeastern Donetsk, we start in the Bakhmutayo. The Russian 200th Arctic Separate Motor Rifle Brigade might be going through some things after their ammunition depot in Dubovo-Vasilivka was destroyed by Ukrainian artillery. We link to the video in our daily situation report, and information on how to become a subscriber is in the podcast description. Ukrainian forces have returned to offensive operations in the Klishchivka AO. Russian forces are under tremendous pressure east of Klishivka and Andreevka, as Ukrainian forces continue a gradual advance toward the T-513 highway ground line of communication G-Log supply line, and Odradivka. A Russian mail blogger claimed that 1,500 Russian troops were killed in action in September, and Russian troops are building defensive positions along the T-513 highway from Ivangrad to Odradivka. They also reported that ground forces and artillery are uncoordinated. Requests for suppressive fire go unanswered. There is a shortage of munitions, and there have been friendly fire incidents. Fighting continued on the edges of Kurdyumevka where Russian troops have more effectively held their defensive positions. Intense fighting continued in southwestern Donetsk. Russian forces continued their attempts to push from the approaches of the Krasnohorivka plateau toward Keramik and the Terekon in the direction of the Avdiivka coke plant, without success. Russian aerospace forces, VKS, attacked Ukrainian positions and the coke plant overnight. While the area east of the Terracon remains a grey area, recent videos clearly show that battles have moved further east toward Vesele. 
The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, GSAFU, reported that Russian attacks continued in the area of Tonenke, while a prominent Russian mail blogger reported that Ukrainian forces had pushed Russian troops out of recently captured positions south of Severna. Russian forces appear to have repeated a tactical error of pushing the reserve forces meant to hold their defensive lines into a failed offensive near Pervomaiske. Not only did Russian troops suffer heavy losses and were forced to withdraw, but Ukrainian forces overran some defensive positions and made marginal gains. The Kremlin has denied battlefield failures by calling them goodwill gestures or, our personal favorite, withdrawing to strategically more advantageous positions. Russian President Vladimir Putin has given us a third one – there was no offensive to begin with. Asked about the situation, the recently labeled dictator said that Russian forces were conducting a, quote, active defense, unquote. Russia still has significant reserves they can continue to press into the Avdivka AO. So it is premature to call the situation fully stabilized. But Ukrainian morale is high, and the active offense defense has been highly effective. Insurgents in occupied Donetsk echoed reports from Russian propagandists and volunteers that hospitals and morgues are overwhelmed. They claim hundreds of dead and wounded soldiers are flowing into the rear areas daily, with bodies stacked in non-conventional areas due to a lack of refrigeration. In the Marinka AO, Russian forces supported by the VKS significantly increased operational tempo in and near Marinka, launching 15 attacks. There was no change. Near Stepne, a Russian TOS-1 multiple-launch rocket system, which narrowly escaped Ukrainian artillery on October 10, ran out of luck and was destroyed. We share the video, but be aware, the music added to the video is not to everybody's taste. It is not safe for work and definitely not for children. So either hit that mute button or put your headphones on. If you're into metal, it's a banger. In the Staromlinivka AO, Russian sources claimed Ukrainian forces were on the offensive near Staromajorska, and GSAFU reported Russian forces were on the offensive near Pryutna. In occupied Mariupol, insurgents claimed that through several incidents 26 Russian soldiers were killed and 15 hospitalized due to food poisoning. Russian soldiers have been advised for over a year never to eat food or take drinks from area residents. And volunteers who are conducting food drives for Russian troops have started to ask for items in tamper-resistant packaging only. Continuing along the line of conflict, here is today's update for Zaporizhia. South of Urihiv, fighting continued west of Verbove, along the Surovikin line to Novoprokopivka and west of Robotene. The International Atomic Energy Agency reported that Rosatom intends to bring Reactor 5 to hot shut down at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. The IAEA inspectors were told that a decision regarding how long Unit 5 will remain in hot shutdown will be made once Nerohodar's heating systems have stabilized. 
The IAEA and Ukrainian officials have repeatedly requested Rosatom to find an external source of steam generation to cover its needs and allow for all the reactors to be maintained in a cold shutdown state, in part because the destruction of the Kohovka Dam has limited the site's cooling water supply. In Free Kherson, Kherson Oblast Administrative and Military Governor Oleksandr Prokudin said Russia carried out 97 fire missions, firing 514 munitions, rockets, drone-delivered IEDs and bombs, striking the city of Kherson 40 times. 11 UMPK glide bombs targeted the Bereslav Rayon, with the VKS dropping 15 bombs across Free Kherson. In the city of Kherson, a large explosion knocked out power, water and internet service for several hours in multiple districts. The train station was also targeted, with one passenger car on the Kherson to Kyiv train damaged by the shockwave. In occupied Kherson, the body of a Russian volunteer who was assisting the military was found shot to death in Brilivka. Occupiers determined that the man was drinking with three Russian soldiers, there was an argument, and he was killed. The three soldiers are in custody and are under investigation for murder. Before I talk about theater-wide events, a quick footnote. We are covering the Israel-Hamas war and have started situation reports available through our Patreon. $5 a month gets you in-depth information about the Russia-Ukraine and Israel-Hamas war. There is a link in the podcast description. And now on to theater-wide events. Russian conducted a smaller drone and missile attack on Ukraine, launching an Iskander-M short-range ballistic missile, 5KH-59 guided missiles and 12 Shahid-136 Kamikaze drones two KH-59 air-to-surface missiles and 11 drones were shot down. The spokesperson for the Ukrainian Air Forces, Colonel Yuri Ignat, said that Ukraine was leasing additional air defense systems from allied nations to provide additional support for the winter months. Quote, we already have this practice. It is clear that each country primarily cares about its own defense, no one will just give us their air defense. Why is it taking so long to supply air defense and why in doses? Because there is not enough air defense in the world to give us what we need. Unquote. Are you surprised? Did you know that a country can do short-term leases for air defense systems, like a rental car? Thank you for listening. My country has been fighting an expanded war against Russian aggression for 600 days. Your support of my home, Ukraine, helps us make history and protect the future for all. Now, let me hand the microphone over to my co-host and executive producer, Zarina Zabrisky, who is on assignment in Kherson. In the context of the Kremlin's hybrid war, conventional hot warfare is just one element of a multifaceted strategy, or as Lieutenant General Ben Hodges called it, multi-domain war. 
please do listen to my introductory episode where I interview General Hodges on this and other matters. While the war in Ukraine and now in Israel may be more visible, it's essential to recognize that the Kremlin's tactics extend well beyond the battlefield. By analyzing and debunking these narratives, we gain a deeper understanding of the Kremlin's strategic goals and how it seeks to influence global opinion. Today, let's look at how the Kremlin has weaponized the Israeli-Hamas conflict, trying to hide its own war crimes in Ukraine and among many other regions in the Kherson Oblast. Israel's approach to the Russian invasion in Ukraine stemmed from its considerations of Russia's influence in the Middle East. Even though Israel has refrained from imposing international sanctions on Russia and limited its support for Ukraine primarily to humanitarian aid, so far the Russian government only expressed deep concern about the situation and called on the parties to stop violence. It even blocked a United Nations Security Council resolution condemning the Palestinian attack on Israel. Hamas has shown gratitude to Moscow for what Hamas perceives as a, quote, worthy stance, unquote, taken by Russia. Russia does not classify Hamas as a terrorist organization. As for the Kremlin-funded media, it has been supportive of Hamas. Russian propaganda highlights an alliance between Iran, a key supporter of Hamas, and Russia. Iran are presented as allies of Russia, while Israel is portrayed as an ally of the United States. The Kremlin's blame game never fails to hold the United States and the European Union responsible for all wars from the Russian invasion in Ukraine to, you guessed it, the Israeli-Hamas conflict. Kremlin propagandists gladly frame Israeli-Hamas current war as another failure of the Western-dominated world order. Russian propaganda doubts, predictably, that there was a tragedy in Kibbutz Kfar Aza, just as they were denying Russian atrocities in Bucha, Ukraine. The Kremlin propagandists claim that the Russian military only strike military objects and use humane ways of fighting. An old lady from Kherson addressed these claims the other day while climbing the ladder to pull the film on the windows smashed by a Russian missile. We lived last winter without water and power, carrying water in buckets in freezing temperatures under Russian shelling, she said. What humanity are they talking about? The Russians are terrorists, just as Hamas. The Kremlin propagandists also insinuate that Israeli's military actions may lead Western nations to reduce military assistance to Ukraine. They do it in order to demoralize Ukrainians. But most and foremost, the Kremlin employs a deflection tactic here. By strategically diverting international attention from its own war crimes in Ukraine, by using the Israeli-Palestinian conflict 
to shift the focus away from its actions. The Kremlin presents the Israel-Hamas confrontation as the most pressing issue, while simultaneously downplaying or deflecting from its culpability in the war in Ukraine. With the Israel-Palestinian conflict dominating the world stage, the Kremlin aims to gain an advantage in several ways. The Kremlin uses this deflection tactic to portray itself as a neutral or even humanitarian actor in the Israel-Palestinian crisis, thereby diverting attention from its own role in the Ukrainian war, creating confusion by highlighting the complexities of the Israel-Palestinian situation, the Kremlin adds to the global narrative's intricacy, making it harder for the international community to focus on Russia's action in Ukraine. Manipulating public opinion. The Kremlin employs this strategy to influence public opinion, particularly in countries that may not be fully informed. It aims to shift the global community perception of its own military operations in Ukraine. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict's emotional nature and its ability, potential to polarize the global community have provided the Kremlin with a powerful tool to further its own interests and foster schisms within Western societies. Whether the Kremlin is directly involved and responsible for the Hamas attack remains to be proved by evidence, and the investigations are ongoing. At this point, we can confidently say that the Israeli-Hamas conflict is weaponized by the Kremlin and is beneficial for its policy. Alexander Tolokonikov, the press officer of Kherson Regional State Administration, is responsible for covering Kherson news to the national and international media and audiences. Every day, he is speaking at the Ukrainian TV program called Marathon, running 24-7 and covering the Russian aggression in Ukraine. I see a lot of death, I see destruction, I see grief Ukrainian people in Kherson. This photo I shoot uh, in my telephone. The world must see this photo because this photo shows uh, really situation in, in Kherson in Ukraine. This photo shows Russian aggression, Russian terrorism, and Russian genocide of Ukrainian people. What is the worst that you have seen during the war? The worst thing I see baby six months and bombs killed this baby. And brother died after exported. I see other child injured. People in the world don't know what is on now. I, I think it's very important. What is happening in Kherson and Kherson Oblast now, this last month? More shelling, more uh, people who died. We see uh, Russian aggression increase. I first met Alexander at a railway station in Kherson, where our crew filmed evacuation scenes for our new documentary. Alexander was there to cover the story of a family fleeing from Russian aerial bombs. 
Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky shared Alexander's photo of civilians killed by a Russian missile attack only a month after the liberation of the city. This photo was seen by millions of people around the world. In September 2023, the Russian military started to use guided aerial bombs to attack Kherson, its suburbs and villages in the region. I first saw the consequences of an aviation strike in the east of Ukraine, near Chernihiv, where whole villages were erased with nothing but sticks and stones left. An old lady sitting on a bench in front of a ruined home told me that nothing is more horrible than an aerial bomb that destroyed her home. Yesterday, on October 15th, Russian military dropped 30 aerial guided bombs on Kherson region. And for a few hours, the city remained without electricity and water. Emergency water supplies ran dry by the end of these two hours, but luckily the communal services were able to restore the services. In a few hours, the Russians were busy bombing Kherson again and all through the night. In addition to dropping parachute explosives, explosives from the drones and firing at the city from multiple launcher rocket systems. So it is not a mystery why many residents of Kherson and Kherson region reluctantly agree to evacuate. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.